The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Finding the Right Pathway in Psoriasis, New Insights and Applications for Tick 2 as a Therapeutic Target in Real-World Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HBV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dr. April Armstrong. I am Professor and Chief of Dermatology at UCLA, and I'm so delighted to be joined by my colleague, Lakshi Aldridge, who is a dermatology nurse practitioner at the VA Portland Healthcare System. Thank you for joining me, Lakshi. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And today we're going to go on a journey together on finding the right path in psoriasis, new insights and applications for TIC2 as a therapeutic target in real-world practice. I'll give the floor to Ms. Aldridge. Thank you so much, Dr. Armstrong. So first, let's talk about some signs and symptoms of psoriasis. Psoriasis is a chronic immune-mediated disease that manifests in the skin, and it greatly impacts patient quality of life. We know that over 8 million Americans suffer with this disease, and the prevalence of psoriasis in Black patients in particular is about 1.5% compared to 3.6% in white patients. But we think that psoriasis is probably underdiagnosed among black patients and other individuals with skin of color because of the differences in clinical presentation. And it's important to acknowledge that patients with more extensive skin involvement have greater reductions in their quality of life. We'll spend some more time talking about that in a minute. So when we talk about the clinical presentations, The patches associated with psoriasis appear as thickened, dry skin. That's the most common presentation. And patients may have many different signs and symptoms. And what they feel and see may vary with the type of psoriasis presentation that they have, the places in the body that psoriasis is presenting, and then the amount of psoriasis that the patient has. And even though psoriasis is considered a cutaneous disorder, it absolutely affects the whole person. In fact, about 30% of patients who have psoriasis may develop psoriatic arthritis, which is inflammation in the joints. And there's increasing evidence that supports that psoriasis truly is a multi-system inflammatory disorder that can affect numerous organs of the body. We know that patients with psoriasis may have a higher incidence of metabolic syndrome, including diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, um, and even depression and anxiety. So it's important to understand that people who treat their psoriasis effectively can lower their risk of developing these comorbidities. In an article by Dr. Armstrong, um, it was the Global Psoriasis and Beyond Survey. And again, the study clearly defined the impact on quality of life. And what we see is the gray areas indicate no effect on quality of life, where that dark blue area shows an extremely large effect on quality of life, and then the full range in between. And what you can appreciate is that patients with mild psoriasis, which is identified as less than 5% of the body surface area affected, all the way to severe disease, which is greater than 10%, body surface area, that the impact of quality of life, even with mild disease, is significant. 
um, you can see that the more severe their disease is, the greater the impact. But it's important to recognize that even with mild disease, even a small surface on the skin that's affected, and this could be the scalp, it could be the genital area, um, even that can be um, uh, have an impact on their quality of life. So it's also important to understand the impact of psoriasis on their relationships with other individuals. I think this is one of the most important slides to appreciate. So look at the responses that people had uh, on sexual life and relationships. So on the very top end, 31% of patients says, um, my, par- my partner loves me just the way I am, which is wonderful. But look at the next one. I avoid having sex because of my condition. 20% of patients who suffer with psoriasis are not engaging in an intimate relationship with their partner because they're embarrassed. And I want you to appreciate that these are patients, young patients in their uh, late teens, early 20s, 30s, uh, really pivotal times in their lives, but also older adults who may be starting second or third relationships after a spouse or someone may have passed. So this is really significant. And then when you look at the right-hand side where they're talking about experiences of discrimination and stigma, uh, 35% of patients are saying they've been asked if they were contagious. A third are saying they're stared at in public um, uh, or people don't understand the impact of my disease um, and psoriatic arthritis, my joint symptoms on my life. Um, I experience more stress than I would if I didn't have psoriasis. So I think that these are really important statements uh, that patients are telling us as providers, and it's something that we really need to pay attention to when we talk about psoriatic disease and treatment options. And this is also really important. It's talking about the current treatment landscape and how patients feel about how they're being treated. So current psoriasis treatments include topicals, biologics, Uh, conventional orals or injectables, phototherapy, and other treatments. So uh, the large majority of patients are being treated with topicals and then biologics. But look at the perceived improvement on current treatment. Even with biologic therapy, patients are saying that they feel better, but 4% are saying that they're worse, and 46% are saying that they're indifferent. So all of the treatment options have a place in our armamentarium for approaching patients with treatment options, but no one treatment is perfect for all patients. So this is looking at patient satisfaction with their treatment options. 53% are saying that they're satisfied with topical treatment, but 25% are saying that they're uncertain and a quarter of patients are unsatisfied. 73% of patients are feeling quite satisfied with biologic therapy, uh, but still we have room to grow with 20 to 7% of patients saying that they're unsatisfied or uncertain. And the right-hand side is talking about the key reasons cited for dissatisfaction. And 54% of patients are saying that it provides relief from my skin and joint symptoms partially, but not completely look at does not improve my overall quality of life, 47% of patients are saying that they don't feel it's affecting their overall quality of life. 
And when we're looking at the impact on quality of life, I just showed you that it can affect interpersonal relationships, um, their, their perception out in public. Um, and when we think about just what we do every day for a living, um, having skin disease that is very visible can cause significant impact on quality of life. So this is also another really important slide talking about the unmet need for providers to better align our desire to treat the patient with how the patient wishes to be treated and what their treatment goals are. So the orange bars indicate um, the treatment goals aligned with the healthcare provider, and then the dark gray bars are indicating the patient's personal treatment goals. So you can see patients are really want to reduce their itching, to lessen the appearance of the plaques, to reduce flaking, and to improve their quality of life, and to achieve and maintain clear or almost clear skin permanently or as long as possible, and to reduce those flares. Whereas what, what we're kind of wanting to do is to reduce the skin symptoms and, they, and include itching, skin pain, flares, episodes. We want to improve their quality of life. But it's really important to notice that in most of the cases, 40% of the time, the provider was the one making the decision. 40% said that they decided together, which is great, showing shared decision-making. But almost a quarter of patients said that their provider did not even discuss treatment goals with their patients. So we definitely have some work to do in this area. So when we look at this side, we're discussing the number of patients with moderate to severe psoriasis who are undertreated or not treated at all. And when we talk about palms, we're talking again about body surface area. So then less than 3% body surface area, a th third of patients, 29%, are saying they receive no treatment whatsoever. And even though we consider 3% body surface area as mild disease, it's still disease. And if it's affecting their scalp or perhaps their elbows or uh, their neck or their shins, uh, that can be significant disease that's quite visible. They're saying they're not receiving any treatment. And 9% uh, or so are, are receiving biologic or an oral plus a biologic. 4 to 10% body surface area, 16% are saying they're not receiving any treatment whatsoever. Uh, the light gray bars are indicating 23% are receiving topical treatment only. And then the rest, 29 are receiving oral treatment, 15% biologic therapy, and then 14%, interestingly, are receiving an oral plus a biologic. And then this is probably the saddest portion, greater than 10% body surface area, 12% are receiving no treatment whatsoever, 26% uh, are uh, receiving an oral treatment, and 14% are receiving biologic, 16% are receiving oral and biologic. An interesting point in this slide is that there are a number of patients across the spectrum who are receiving both oral and biologic therapy. And that tells me that in some patients, biologic therapy alone is not adequate, and there may be a need to add additional therapy. So over the past two decades, there really has been a paradigm shift in the way that we think about 
managing psoriasis. So on the basis of understanding the pathogenesis of psoriasis, monoclonal antibody therapy or biologic therapy, including TNF-alpha therapy, interleukin-23, IL-17 pathways, have really been the area of focus. And in particular, IL-17 and IL-23 have been shown to be the primary pathogenic pathways for targeting treatments. And they've been proven to be safe and efficacious in the treatment of chronic plaque psoriasis. However, there still is an unmet need for effective and safe oral and topical treatments, as well as for strategies to personalize the treatment, halt disease progression, and prevent those comorbidities I shared with you earlier. And now I will turn it over to Dr. Armstrong. Thank you, Lakshi, for that fantastic presentation, helping us to understand the impact of psoriasis on our patients. So when we think about classification of psoriasis, traditionally it has been classified based really on what we can see in terms of the body surface area or physician global assessment or POSI, which combines both a plaque morphology as well as body surface area. However, this has changed over time as we start to appreciate the role of locations as well as failure of prior therapy. So now when we look at patients with psoriasis and try to determine whether they would be candidates for topical versus systemic therapy, we typically think of them as either, as you can see on the left-hand side, candidates for topical therapy or those defined as candidates for systemic therapy could meet at least one of the following criteria. So we have our traditional body surface area of 10% or greater, but then importantly, if they have disease involving special areas, and those are the face, palms and soles, intertriginous areas, for example. And uh, importantly, if they fail topical therapies, then we want to consider them for systemic treatments. So let's take a look at the epidemiology of patients with special areas. If you look at the left-hand side, what you will notice is not only the proportion of patients among psoriasis patients who may have scalp involvement, for example, around high 50s to 60%, uh, but also then looking at the facial involvement, genitals, nails, and soles, and palms. And importantly, this is also demarcated, divided by uh, patient's severity. So the light blue denotes milder disease uh, in terms of the overall body surface area, and then this, uh, the darker blue representing overall body surface area of 10% or greater. When we look at the right-hand side, what we'll notice is that if we look at our patient area and ask them how many sensitive areas are involved, is it just the scalp? Is it the scalp and the face and the nails? What we'll notice is that if they have, for example, more than 10% of their body surface area involved, then the number of sensitive areas they tend to have involved is, is also greater. All right. So with that in mind, let's take a dive looking into the pathogenesis of psoriasis, as well as a mechanism of uh, action for the different targeted therapies. It used to be a lot of the actions are on keratinocytes. And I think over the last 15 years or so, the energy and the focus has really been in the dysregulation in our immune system. TH17 cells are pivotal uh, in terms of their role in psoriasis pathogenesis. And uh, TH17 cells get there because IL-23 is one of the molecules that can help naive T cells 
differentiating into Th17 cells. And then the Th17 cell then subsequently can secrete a number of different cytokines, including IL-17s. What you will also see on this graph in the red boxes are the uh, different biologics and where they act. So now I talked about keratinocytes as being the previous focus, but it's also important that they're not just bystanders. They, uh, what they also contribute to this inflammatory uh, process. They can be stimulated. They can secrete cytokines as well and overall uh, really contribute to this feed-forward system. All right. And then, so with that in mind, we talked about where the biologics act. We also saw around historically, around 2014 to 2016, um, an introduction of newer types of oral therapies. So as you can see here uh, in this graph, when we look at those uh, two years uh, of expansion, we see um, not only the approval of Primalast, which is an oral medication, uh, but also its uptake uh, in our clinical community. Now, following a Primalast, um, people started to look into this molecule, um, TIG2 molecule. And what they noted is that um, in the nature, right, this is a nature's experiment. Um, when we were looking at the human race, for example, there are some people who have this natural loss of function mutation in TIG2. What they saw is that those who have loss of function mutation or partial loss of function mutation in TIG2, they don't get psoriasis. So this is very interesting, and this began the search for potentially another target uh, for therapy for psoriasis. Okay, so what is TIG2? TIG2 belongs to uh, the uh, Janus kinase family. Now, in that particular family, we have TIG2, we have JAK1, we have JAK2, and we have JAK3. If we look on the left-hand side, what you see is that um, these Janus kinase uh, says what they do is that they work intracellularly and they are very important in terms of transmitting the signal from uh, extracellular to intracellular into the nucleus, such that when a cytokine binds to its receptor, how is that signal transmitted? Very importantly, it's transmitted through the action of uh, these uh, Janus kinase molecules. And what they do is that they put, they phosphorylate things. So they're very good at phosphorylating things. And uh, as you can see, they can phosphorylate stat molecules, which then can go to the nucleus, and that results in downstream transcription of certain genes. And if we look at the right-hand side, what we see is that JAK inhibitors, uh, when they are introduced, what they do is that they inhibit these Janus kinases and therefore really put a stop to the transduction of those signals. All right, so when we look at Janus kinase family, where do the different family members uh, act? I want to have you focus your attention on the left-hand side, and that is where the TIC2 uh, molecules are. So intracellularly, TIC2 being associated with the, uh, with the cytosolic uh, membrane part of the, uh, of the receptor, TIC2 actually will partner up with, a, with either JAK1 or JAK2, and, uh, and then they can mediate different functions. So natively, TIC2, JAK2 combination, for example, is important to, for TH1 differentiation, TH17 differentiation, right? We talked about TH17 and its roles in psoriasis, as well as interferon gamma secretion. If we will look at the second set, what we see is that TIC2 
can partner up with JAK1, and it can be uh, used in terms of the dendritic cell maturation, the MHC expression, B cell differentiation, and so forth. Okay, so let's take a little closer look at not only the TIC2, uh, but also uh, JAK1, 2, and 3, other members of the Janus kinase family. Okay, so here you have four members of this family, and TIC2 is a little different, as you can see. Um, it, it's different in name as well as different in, a, uh, in its function uh, from the other uh, family members. So each family member actually has uh, is a uh, heterodimer. That means um, each uh, family member has two parts to its molecule. What you see is that the blue part is the catalytic domain. So this is where ATP binds. And ATP binding is an essential part of the initiation of, of, of uh, what these Janus kinase family members do. It needs the ATP bind so that it can take the phosphate group and phosphorylate other things. Now, you'll notice structurally there's something important here. The ATP binding site or the catalytic site uh, is quite similar structurally across these various family members, across these four family members. And however, the regulatory domain, which is the left-hand side, and which is depicted here by the different colors, they are structurally uh, more dissimilar or distinct among the different family members. And why this is important is that this we can take advantage of this therapeutically. So up to before the introduction of a TIC2 inhibitor, um, what people have done is that they did the most logical thing in terms of inhibition of these, of these JAK molecules. They would develop a drug that would target the ATP binding site because that seems like where the money is, right? You block the ATP from binding. Of course, the enzyme cannot function. But some of the problems with the development in that regard is that because the ATP binding site is so similar across the different members, that can also, that particular binding, for example, to JAK1, that molecule, the inhibitor uh, drug can also potentially bind to JAK2's ATP binding site. So you may get these, um, you may get these undesired effects through cross-reactivity with these other JAKs. And um, so here came ducravacitinib, which is a drug that has been developed uh, with a really high specificity, and not at the ATP binding site, but in fact binding to the TIC2, the regulatory domain. So the domain that's a bit more specific for each of the um, different Janus kinase molecules. And interestingly, ducravacitinib uh, uh, locks into the, binds to the regulatory domain, what happens is that the ATP binding site, it locks the ATP binding site uh, in an act in a confirmation where ATP cannot bind. So this is important because you get inhibition of the regulatory domain, which results in the same effect as what you want, want uh, as inhibiting the ATP binding site. So by binding to the regulatory domain, the ATP binding site actually cannot open to bind the ATP. So you still get the inhibition of the molecule, but you get the specificity of binding to the uh, regulatory domain. And that kind of binding, where you bind at another site of the molecule, however, you still have, you still inhibit the catalytic action, is called allosteric inhibition. And ducravacinib is one of the first molecules that was discovered that was made to do that. Um, and actually had won a number of different awards uh, for, for that particular discovery.
Okay, so let the data speak for itself, and then let's see how specific the ducravacitinib inhibition is. On the far right, it's ducravacitinib at this, those at six milligrams and twelve milligrams. What you see is that you hardly get any hits on the JAK one three activity or two two activity, but you are really inhibiting the tick two, the blue bar uh, activity there, thereby speaking to its specificity. And in fact, binding to the allosteric domain. Uh, is now so sought after with regards to TIC2 inhibition, when we look at the different molecules here under development, for example, sasocitinib, uh, BTX molecule, and so forth, what you see is that majority of these molecules, they're designed now as allosteric domain inhibitors. Okay, so mechanism ducravacitinib, which I went over a little bit, um, in terms of how it works molecularly, but let's take a look at the specific uh, pathways that ducravacitinib inhibits. So we know ducravacitinib allosterically inhibit TIC2 activity, and uh, in doing so, it also avoids potential JAK1 to 3 effects. And what we see in terms of the TIC2 signaling pathway that we want to dampen in psoriasis include, for example, IL-23. IL-23, very important. So ducravacitinib's primary mechanism of action is actually through dampening of the IL-23 uh, signaling, signaling pathway. Ducravacitinib also dampens uh, the IL-12 as well as interferon alpha, um, as well as interferon uh, beta pathways. So here are the pivotal studies. These are large global studies where ducravacitinib was studied not only against placebo, but also importantly against a premolast. And there are two sister studies here to ensure that the uh, results are reproducible. So in the next few graphs, you will see you'll see uh, poetic PSO1 and then its sister study poetic PSO2 on the right-hand side. The two studies are uh, designed identically up to week 24. So let's take a look at the proportion of patients achieving POSI 75. And this is uh, uh, at least 75% improvement from baseline. What we see here is that uh, at week 16, um, which is a, a primary endpoint, nearly 60% of the, pa uh, of the uh, patients randomized to ducravacitinib achieved POSI 75 compared to 35%, which is the uh, middle blue line representing a premolast. And, uh, and what you also notice is that if you extend beyond week 16, you have this continuous improvement in ducravacitinib. Uh, so by week 24, nearly 70% of the patients in PSO1 study achieve uh, POSI 75 with ducravacitinib compared to 38% in the premolast group. So what we learn from this is that uh, we see uh, the superiority of ducravacitinib over premolast in its efficacy when we're looking at POSI-75. What if we look at other endpoints, you may say, what about SPG-01, which is clear, almost clear, same trend, same difference, uh, also hold in this uh, with this outcome measure, uh, as you can see here, um, ducravacitinib outperforms a premolast uh, when we're looking at the endpoint of clear or almost clear uh, as well. What about scalp? We talked about the special areas and, and nearly about 60% of the patients have scalp um, psoriasis based on some of the epidemiologic data. And here, if you look at patients who at the beginning of trial 
will have moderate to severe scalp severity. And we look at the their response, how many of them would achieve clear, almost clear through week 16. What we see is that um, 70% of the patients will have achieved clear, almost clear by four months on Ducravacitinib compared to 40% of the patients on a Premlast. So very good efficacy, I think, for Ducravacitinib and superiority over a Premlast in scalp disease as well. What about long-term? So let's take a look at one-year data uh, among those who had moderate to severe scalp disease at baseline. Uh, about 70% of them, nearly 70% of them, uh, will maintain their clear, almost clear at week 52. So let's talk about some of the safety aspects. So what you see here is that ducravacinib is very well tolerated. In fact, the rates of nausea and diarrhea is either numerically the same as placebo or a little bit lower. You can also see a premolas here, uh, the rates for comparison. And uh, when we look at other uh, safety uh, events uh, in terms of ducravacinib compared to placebo over week 16, um, we see slightly increased blood CPK levels in some patients. Typically, those are um, patients who have some strenuous activity and those CPK levels normalize uh, uh, with, uh, with discontinuation of the strenuous activity. Uh, they were not clinically significant and did not lead to discontinuation of ducravacitinib. We also saw low rates of mouth ulcers and herpes simplex and uh, uh, lower, uh, low rates of folliculitis and acne. Again, most of these uh, were mild in severity and did not lead to uh, the discontinuation of ducravacitinib. But I wanted to uh, have you take a look at some of these uh, uh, events through week 16. Now, let's also talk about things that we um, really you know, want to uh, take a look closer uh, with these Janus kinase inhibitors, TIC2 being uh, in, in one way quite distinct from the other JAK1, 2, or 3s. So here we're looking at non-melanoma skin cancer uh, along with a whole host of other uh, events of interest. So what we saw here is that uh, ducravacitinib uh, does not uh, uh, increase the uh, chances of malignancy, and, and as you can see, malignancy rates on, for patients on ducravacitinib um, during the first year is similar to that uh, in, uh, to that uh, with a premolast, also no increased rates of serious infections um, or uh, thromboembolic events or MACE events. There were slightly higher rates of herpes zoster. Um, again, those were mild in terms of severity and most did not lead to discontinuation of ducravacitinib. Okay. Now, there was a retreatment uh, uh, part of the study where they, for patients who had been on ducravacitinib, they took the ducravacitinib away through this randomized withdrawal where people were randomized to getting placebo all of a sudden, and then they retreat them. So they wanted to see how those patients did. And this is important because you may have a patient who has been on ducravacitinib and for some reason um, forget to take their pills or had an interruption in the therapy. And then when you retreat them, you want to know how well would they respond uh, to retreatment. And I think this speaks to probably some of the advantages of oral therapies is that with these small molecules, we don't have to worry about the development of anti-drug antibodies. And so probably somewhat predictably, if a patient had been responding to ducravacitinib 
if they experience an interruption in their uh, treatment. And when you retreat them again, as you can see here, they will regain their prior response um, based on this data. So patients who had been in the parent studies uh, that I spoke about, they were all then enrolled in the long-term extension study. And the purpose of that is to, one, study the safety, but also look at how they respond longer term. So here, uh, what we see is that patients have uh, maintained uh, their ducramacitinib response as a population over time. Here is a maintenance of response, of clear, almost clear response through week 52. Again, a good maintenance of response over, over time. This particular slide divides patients uh, into biologic treatment naive, which is on the left-hand side. And then on the right-hand side, you have those with prior biologic treatment. And what you will notice is that ducramacitinib uh, uh, produces good response in both of those patient populations. On the right-hand side, patients who have had biologic treatments in the past, we see only slightly less effectiveness uh, in those patients who had previously uh, been on biologics. Now, we have been focused very much in the skin, uh, but let's also think about the joint as well. And um, when we have a new medication for psoriasis, especially systemic medication, we always have the question, does the medication have an effect on psoriatic arthritis? And why this is important is that one-third of our patients are sort of destined to develop psoriatic arthritis. So here is a slide where we uh, look at the pathophysiology of psoriatic arthritis. One thing is that you may see some similar players here. So you see, for example, um, you see TH17 cells uh, in the center of this as well, which we talked about earlier. And uh, also, very importantly, you see IL-12, IL-23. Uh, so there, are, there's a lot of shared pathology, not surprisingly, uh, in terms of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So how did ducramacitinib do with regards to psoriatic arthritis? Um, it is currently in phase three program, um, as you can see here. And the dose uh, uh, that is studied uh, in phase three is displayed here at six milligrams QD here. On the left-hand side, what we see is that in the phase two program results, those are now, uh, those have been revealed. And what we see here is that ducramacitinib achieved um, ACR 20, uh, so if we're looking at the uh, ducravacitinib, uh, six milligrams here, 53% uh, of them achieving um, ACR20 uh, compared to 31% on the placebo group. Okay, so to summarize with regards to ducravacitinib, here's a clinical snapshot. So it's used as a six milligram medication once daily. Um, no tests are required prior to initiation other than tuberculosis evaluation. Now, if you have a patient who you suspect may have li liver disease or want to evaluate for that, you can also check for LFTs as well as hepatitis viral serology uh, in those patients. Uh, there's no known drug-drug interactions, and the medication can be taken with or without food. Um, if you have a patient with severe uh, liver impairment, you want to avoid ducravacitinib uh, in those patients, and also ducravacitinib is not to be recommended in those with hepatitis B or C. And with that, I am uh, really excited to have a, a dialogue and conversation with Lakshi on how do we identify patients who would benefit most from incorporating these TIC2 inhibitors into our routine care uh, using a team-based approach.
Thank you so much, April. That was a great review of Ducravacitinib and the pathophysiology of psoriasis as well. So let's move on to thinking about treating our patients with this disease. And as you can see, there's numerous ways that we can do that. Lots of different agents, everything from topical uh, treatments, including anthralin, coal tar, um, topical steroids, phototherapy, um, the traditional systemic treatments such as methotrexate, um, but then also the biologics such as ustekinumab and infliximab. Um, So we have a lot of different agents that we can now um, discuss and talk about with our patients as far as coming to a reasonable decision uh, for treatment. So when we think about factors to consider when selecting a specific therapy, I think it's really important to talk with the patients about, again, their priorities. Uh, We want an agent that is effective in the skin, but also effective in the joints, especially if they're starting to have symptoms of stiffness and pain in the joints, especially when they wake up in the morning. Patients and providers are also really concerned about safety. We want something that is not only efficacious, but is also not going to add to their disease burden by causing unwanted side effects. We want something that's convenient for the patients, and patients definitely want something that fits in with their lifestyle, whether it's an oral agent, perhaps it's a college-age student, and um, they need something that is not daily but is has less frequent dosing. Some patients have significant issues with uh, delivering an injection, so that might be a factor. Other considerations include comorbidities, other existing diseases. Perhaps they're a patient who has a history of cancer or a patient who's considering starting a family and pregnancy might be an issue. We also want to ask about previous responses to treatment. And then, unfortunately, cost is a consideration. So understanding the patient's financial situation, their access to health care and insurance, those things need to be considered as well. And then I think some other important things are um, thinking about monitoring. Um, So with our traditional oral systemic treatments for psoriasis, we've had to think about that with methotrexate. We're thinking about liver functions. We're also worried potentially about anemia and the impact on the kidneys. So we're thinking about initial labs and then at least every three months for the first year or so, and then more uh, less often if they're stable, um, but then also making sure that we're evaluating them for potential side effects and also um, about their lifestyle. Uh, cyclosporin is a drug that we traditionally use as a bridge or a uh, treatment temporarily because of the long-term effects. So we tend to use cyclosporin for maybe six months or less um, as uh, they get uh, to stabilize their disease, especially if they have a severe flare or they have a really severe case of psoriasis, we may start them on cyclosporin to stabilize their disease and then trans, uh, transition them to another more um, safer, more tolerable uh, treatment. Acetretin has been a drug that we've used um, probably less frequently because of side effects and tolerability. But again, you can see you need to monitor liver functions. There are lipid profiles for this. Um, and a premolas does not require lab monitoring, but again, we want to make sure we're seeing them frequently and assessing for changes in their mood and depression 
and then also potentially for weight. And if they are suffering from nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, and they're not able to perhaps maintain their nutritional status, you may want to think about checking their kidney function as well. Um, also, there's a decreased dosing if they have pre-existing uh, kidney disease. And then when we look at biologic therapies, the uh, approved systemic therapies are TNF-alpha inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, and IL-23 inhibitors, all listed there. And um, as uh, April had mentioned, um, TIC2 requires pre-screening for tuberculosis, but all of the biologic therapies also have that as a requirement prior to starting. Um, so that is a screening mechanism. Uh, but each of these may have recommendations for additional testing um, as well. Some of the limitations with biologic therapies, which we often think of as highly efficacious, but we also really want to think about um, some limitations. And there may be patients who do not respond to any of the classes of biologic therapies, or perhaps one over the other. They may also experience a loss of response. So we'll see this really great uh, efficacy initially, and then a loss of response over time. Again, some drugs have to be um, given intravenously, um, at, including infliximab, and some of the biologics, most of them are given subcutaneously. But again, some patients may not be comfortable with that and may require somebody else to give them that um, injection, or they may actually come into your office to receive the treatment. There is a risk of immunogenicity, as we mentioned, where they um, actually develop um, antibodies to the drugs. So if they uh, lose response or they stop taking the medication for a period of time and then they reintroduce it, they may not get the same level of response or any response at all. Um, and then these are fairly expensive medications. So that might be a limiting factor for using biologics as well. And then uh, looking at TIC2 inhibitors and where they fit in the treatment algorithm, uh, it's really um, uh, since it's been approved since 2022, um, we are still in the process of figuring out where this can fit in. But what we do know is it does fit in nicely. So there definitely remains an unmet need for safe and efficacious treatment in our psoriasis patients, um, including those patients who are on biologic therapy. So safety is a concern um, with the conventional treatments, as I mentioned, including uh, methotrexate and cyclosporin. Um, also consider both of those uh, this, the traditional treatments in our family planning. Those are not, not great options in our young women who are considering starting families. Uh, JAK inhibitors as a class are also associated with some off-target effects, including black box warning, with some of the traditional JAK inhibitors um, that were used in primarily our rheumatology patients um, that demonstrated some serious adverse event events, including infections, malignancies, and thrombosis. Um, there was also a need to monitor those labs uh, labs frequently in those patients with our traditional JAK inhibitors. But again, we're not necessarily seeing those risk factors in our ducravacitinib-treated patients, a really nice safety profile, and therefore not having to have any significant monitoring parameters unless there is a need to consider that with uh, individual patients who may have pre-existing liver or kidney issues. Again, that's up to the discretion of the provider. Uh, the unique mechanism of action of ducravacitinib um, with that allosteric inhibition that April had talked about really makes it 
a very nice, uh, 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 efficacious drug with really nice safety profile that we um, uh, don't necessarily appreciate with the other JAK inhibitors. So it really has become a very forward-thinking treatment option for our psoriasis patients who have been treated with biologics, but also as an alternative treatment for uh, first-line treatment for our psoriasis patients. So a, a premolast, really very safe and easy to use, but we need to think about those side effects um, of nausea, vomiting, and decreased tolerability. Um, with ducravacitinib, we see that there is very low rates of nausea, diarrhea, and headache. Um, compared to placebo, they were about the same. Um, so again, that really demonstrates that it tends to be more tolerable, which increases adherence to the therapy. And so when we talk about um, moderate to severe psoriasis overall, the place, um, we see that it is safe, tolerable, efficacious, convenient, and there's promising results in psoriatic arthritis, as April showed us, and studies um, looking at the treatment of uh, TIC2 in irritable bowel disease is also uh, promising. So it really provides a convenient once daily oral treatment option for patients who have psoriasis who are candidates for systemic or phototherapy. It should be considered first line and not necessarily as a treatment option when somebody fails traditional uh, oral treatments or uh, biologic treatment. It really can be used as a first line treatment. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to April to talk about our case studies. Great. Thank you, Lakshi. Um, now, let's think about how to kind of put everything into perspective and how to um, really bring it down to uh, the patient level, incorporating some of our newer oral therapies. Um, so these are uh, kind of two patients of mine. So the first one is James, uh, who uh, is a 48-year-old man, as you can see, um, with a history of hypothyroidism and depression, um, had been initially controlled on topicals and then phototherapy for two years, but found it inconvenient. Not, you know, I think a clinical history that a lot of us can uh, identify with. And he had been on a premolast uh, for a while, so um, 30 milligrams twice daily. He preferred oral therapy. He initially has some um, nausea and minor diarrhea, but that actually improved over time. And uh, so throughout the treatment with a premolast, um, patient did have some residual plaques and wanted to uh, explore uh, different options here. And so um, then when I uh, saw James, uh, uh, he was on, he came to me uh, on a premolast and he had BSA of about 6%, POSI of 8, PGA of 2. And, uh, and um, so, and mostly, uh, you know, most of his areas, the focus was on the scalp and lower legs. And uh, he was, uh, he still wanted to stick with oral therapies and wanted to know if there's something else uh, that may be there. So this is when I switched him uh, from a premolase to a ducravacitinib, um, six milligrams daily. And uh, he was followed up uh, about three months after the switch. And uh, what we saw was that his um, uh, BSA had decreased to 2%, uh, POSI 2%, and PG of 1 on the lower leg. So he did see improvement on ducravacitinib, and he continues um, on ducravacitinib to date. And he also uh, still has a trimcinolone cream uh, as needed. 
uh, for this patient, I checked uh, his uh, prior to initiation. I checked uh, for TB. I also checked uh, for his LFTs and hepatitis serologies, which were negative. And uh, here is, um, and I'll talk about another patient, Brooke. So this is a female patient um, who had mild plaque psoriasis, and uh, but then started flaring around age 25. Um, and she became pregnant around that time. And I had counseled her actually, you know, usually pregnancy is associated with decreased risk of psoriasis due to, you know, pregnancy induces the immune tolerance state. Um, however, you know, her, her, in her case, her psoriasis continued to flare during pregnancy. And we put her on sertolizumab because uh, there's good data showing that sertolizumab does not uh, appear to cross the placenta and also it's safe during breastfeeding. So he, she had an uneventful pregnancy, delivered a healthy boy, and uh, was maintained on sertolizumab uh, also through the first year postpartum while, while breastfeeding. And then um, what we, uh, then afterwards, uh, she wanted to uh, transition to an oral therapy. Um, uh, and, and so this is a case of where we transition a patient from a biologic um, to oral therapy. Um, and uh, in her, I also did uh, laboratory workups similar to the first case that I uh, described, um, checking the uh, TB uh, liver function enzymes and hepatitis serologies. Uh, which were also uh, within normal limits, um, negative uh, TB or uh, hepatitis BNC uh, serologies. And she was switched um, from sertralizumab to ducravacitinib. So as you can see overall, um, ducravacitinib was able to maintain her around the same efficacy level uh, as sertralizumab. And she she's a person who uh, prefers oral options and that we have uh, continued her on ducravacitinib uh, since. I know also, Lakshmi, you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to addressing healthcare disparities. Can you share with us some of your insights? Thank you for that, April. Those two cases were really great highlights of how ducravacitinib can really be used as a wonderful treatment um, option for our, our patients. But really thinking about healthcare disparities. Remember I mentioned in the beginning that about 1.5% of um, Black patients um, and even uh, 2.5 in the Asian community. Um, we know these patients are undertreated. We know that the diagnosis of psoriasis is made less often in these patients, that the presentation of psoriasis is different in skin of color patients, that these patients are less likely to receive appropriate treatment, including both oral and biologic therapies. Um, we also know that there may be uh, barriers to culturally competent care. Um, how many of us really talk to our patients um, of different uh, uh, skin types and different uh, cultural, uh, different cultures about their cultural preferences um, may have um, biases associated with treating patients with skin of color, whether it's an unconscious bias or even conscious, perhaps stereotyping. We know that lower socioeconomic status is associated with worse outcomes, including lower quality of life and greater impact on work productivity. They may tend to lose their jobs more often. They have less days at work, which then uh, results in less financial um, uh, health for them as well. 
We also know that suboptimal health literacy is associated with poor health outcomes. So really helping them to truly understand how they learn, how they receive information. You may even need to bring in a translator. Um, That is really important. Um, Lower educational level is also increased, uh, linked to increased disease activity, fewer physician visits, and a lower likelihood of receiving systemic treatment. There's also this unconscious bias or perception that people with skin of collar or lower socioeconomic status may not qualify for some more expensive treatments, including biologics and even some oral agents. But patients can qualify, thankfully, through um, foundations that can support patients' access to these medications. And the uh, pharmaceutical companies also have programs that can assist patients who have uh, who are not covered by insurance. And barriers to adherence are really important to discuss. We know that patients with skin of color and in lower socioeconomic classes have higher levels of non-adherence to treatments, including in dermatologic states. So uh, we know that um, age, gender, education, social stigma, employment, financial security, and even marital status makes uh, uh, plays a role. So we know that oftentimes it's family members or caregivers who are reminding patients to take their medications uh, or assisting them in delivering their biologic injections or even applying topicals in hard-to-reach areas. Um, unclear dosage instructions, um, or again, perhaps patients don't read uh, the written um instructions you're giving them. They may not read English. Uh, They may not be able to read at that level. There was a national psoriasis study that was done many years ago that talked about how time-consuming putting on topical treatments can be, and that can certainly play a role in adherence. And we know that there's a perceived lack of effectiveness of some treatments. So patients may use a topical treatment or even an oral treatment for several weeks or a month, don't see the full benefit of it. So then they become fed up and they quit taking it. So really um, also being forgetful, they may not have someone to remind them to take their medications. Some patients may not have cell phones even where they can set alarms to remind themselves to take medications. Uh, Being forgetful of renewing prescriptions or once the treatment prescription is over, they don't think to uh, renew it, or they may have received poor communication that there is a need to continue to take treatment, uh, that this is lifelong therapy for almost all of these treatments. So we really need to think about strategies for improving treatment and setting the stage for treatment adherence. All of this goes to clear communication with our patients, that uh, provider dialogue with the patient, including them in the discussion, including your office staff, your LPNs, MAs, RNs, even your office managers in in, uh, creating patient education tools um, that can help adhere treatment, making sure that they're getting the right materials to take home, Uh, and then educating them at the time and place that is appropriate for the patients, including uh, family members, caregivers, loved ones, spouses in the discussion to help adhere uh, with treatment adherence and also ensuring 
that you're on the journey with the patient. You're going to be their partner in treatment. That makes all the difference in the world in uh, helping patients to um, understand uh, what you're giving them and why you're giving it to them and how to use it appropriately. So now I will turn it back over to April to talk about uh, coordinating the interprofessional discussions, and I'll chime in as well. Great. Thank you, Alakshi. So when we think about uh, our healthcare system now and uh, how important it is for us to work as a team in order to optimize the care for our psoriasis patients, um, the coordinated interprofessional care model is something um, that we want to kind of um, really understand and, and, and build on. And when we think about this coordinated care model for our uh, patients with psoriasis and uh, uh, in related psoriatic conditions, um, it's very important that every member of the team um, has an opportunity to receive, for example, uh, the newest information with regards to the therapies, as well as uh, skill sets necessary, for example, to recognize signs uh, of psoriatic arthritis. Um, and when we think about offering these trainings to the care team, our nurse practitioners, our physician assistants, um, we can have the dermatologists, and uh, we can we also have perhaps MAs um, or LVNs who work in the psoriasis clinic or or, or tend to see those uh, patient populations, and then thinking about how each person may play a different but also complementary role is really important. Uh, a few things um, is uh, that's uh, important is routine screen for comorbidities. For example, psoriatic arthritis. I ask every single one of my patients when they come in is that whether they experience stiffness in their joints uh, or the back when they wake up in the morning. And if they say yes, and if that uh, stiffness is greater than 30 minutes, then you know we may want to consider further evaluation for PSA. Um, so ways of and ways of screening patients not only for PSA but also making sure that they are plugged in with primary care because psoriasis patients tend to have uh, greater levels of comorbidities uh, with regards to cardiovascular comorbidities um, is important. Um, also providing counseling services uh, for patients uh, who may not have ready access to uh, educational materials. Um, is important. So thinking about especially uh, underserved patients who may have care access challenges, um, really think about uh, is a patient, you know, not only going to get the medication, I'm giving it to them, but do they understand how to use it? And if necessary, should I see them earlier, right, after um, after initiating a new therapy, making sure that they don't have any questions, making sure that they're comfortable with this particular therapy. Again, this takes a village. So you're not only incorporating the patient and their caregivers and loved ones, but we're also, as you mentioned, using the entire psoriasis team. And advanced practice providers, along with the dermatologist and the rest of the care team, really play a role. NPs and PAs are a great treatment provider for chronic disease and dermatology. Often we're the ones that follow up with patients, but we can also be the initial provider that assesses our psoriasis patients and then starts them on a treatment plan and continues on with them as the primary manager of their psoriasis care. Um, it's really all about relationship building, setting reasonable expectations, and assessing treatment options. So in some clinic settings, there may be a dermatologist. In some areas, especially rural communities, 
There may be an NP in the clinic only or a PA only in the clinic. So all of us have unique skill sets, whether we are an advanced practice provider or a dermatologist. All of us are uniquely trained to care for psoriasis, psoriasis patients. It's really important that we all engage in using evidence-based medicine and, again, incorporating the patient in uh, the management of their care and then looking at the different treatment options that are available, looking at our communities of need, um, socioeconomic situations, uh, barriers and access to care, and then managing that patient where they are, setting clear expectations, and then providing them with the best treatment options that are available. And April, I was wondering if you would kind of talk with us a little bit about shared decision-making with the team. Absolutely. Um, I think as the world evolves, um, I think our patients um, are also getting more and more healthcare information. And so the role with which the clinicians and patients and how they um, work together to come up with treatment recommendations, um, that process has evolved. Shared decision-making is a process um, where the clinician conveys facts about the treatment and makes recommendation to the patient based on their assessment of the patient. And the patient communicates to the clinician their values and, and preferences. It's very important to understand that shared decision-making is not a process where we present a, venue, a menu of options for patients and say, you pick. That's actually not shared decision-making. Um, I think as a clinician, we are uh, equipped with the knowledge of how the various medication works and can help individualize the medication, uh, pick a plan that we think may be um, uh, the best for that particular person. But very importantly, in that process, we want to involve the patient. We want to get their preferences and get their values. And if something that we selected for them is not necessarily something that they agree with, they're not going to take it anyways. So we really need their buy-in through this uh, process. And when we think about this, there are barriers to shared decision-making. Um, and uh, shared decision-making can take a little while. However, when we think about this shared decision-making, typically, especially for systemic uh, medications, uh, the most time-consuming part is typically in the beginning, where we talk to patients uh, about the efficacy and the safety and making sure that they're comfortable with the data and so forth. Once the patient is well-controlled, actually, in most of follow-up appointments, as you can see, it actually may not take as long. Um, so I think uh, I really believe in sort of written literature for the patient, you know, give them something that they can take home with if they're not ready to make a decision, but then schedule a follow-up appointment that's shortly after when you initially see them so that it's still on their mind and then an action can be taken so that their disease uh, can be uh, on the way to, to gaining control. And it's very important to also assess the patient and their health literacy level. And therefore, I think as clinicians, we need to be even more adaptable in terms of our communication um, skill sets to, to, talk with, uh, to talk with these patients. Well, Lakshi, I think we've had a, a really uh, nice conversation today uh, regarding finding the uh, treatment approaches and, and how to individualize our therapies for patients and with a focus on the novel uh, oral therapies for psoriasis patients. And uh, just some of the Concluding um, points here, uh, I think we talked about uh, our renewed understanding of psoriasis epidemiology and its pathogenesis, 
you spoke very eloquently on the substantial emet need that remains for our patients uh, with psoriasis with oral uh, in oral therapies. And uh, we are happy to see that there is a new medication that's FDA-approved, newer medication, I shall say, FDA-approved that um, uh, that targets at TIC2. Um, and then we uh, went, went over some of the very specific characteristics of Ducravacitinib and also looking into the future, how we may have similar medications in that class that's coming up. Um, we spoke about the management of psoriasis being personalized, individualized. We talked you talked very nicely about adherence and what we can do to help improve that. And then we ended with a team-based approach and how as uh, clinicians, we can all work together to best meet our patients' need. And so with that, I want to thank you so much, Lakshi, for this fantastic program. And I also want to thank our attendees for your attention. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HBV 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.